Well, if you get to note, I sent out. You all know we're starting up our new series here. This evening we're going to be over at 1 Timothy. It doesn't look like we've ever broken this book down. Here we have done 2 Timothy and a few others. But we're going to take a dive here into 1 Timothy. And in this one, we're just going to cover the, the first part of chapter 1. And Paul opens this letter, much like he opens all the others. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this letter is written to Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles. It is a, uh, Timothy was a pastor, he's a young pastor, over the church of Ephesus. And of course, in Ephesus, when Paul was there, he had first been to uh, Crete, and in Crete, he left Titus down there to take care of the people that were down in, uh, down in Crete. And so he headed on up to, to this way over in Ephesus, and Timothy was with him. And while he was there, there was still more work to be done. So he left Timothy here to take care of the work that was there. And while Timothy was there, he had some questions because he was having a very quickly growing church. Some of the people were not responding to him so well because he was young and they were older. And uh, he had some questions about what to do with a rapidly growing church and a, and a problem of not getting enough leaders to be able to take care of the, the people at hand. So this is what Paul is writing this letter for, a little bit different from what he writes Second Timothy for. Second Timothy, he's on the downswing. <laughs> the, the church is getting smaller because the people are either be, being killed or forced to go back into idolatry or die. And um, so his church is actually shrinking and some of his leaders were leaving. So the two letters are for two different purposes, but we can learn some things, of course, from all of them. But here he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. This is his role. His role was an apostle. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father. Now, my pastor, Bob Yanyan, he was the one who pointed this out to me first, and I've said it to you a number of times. But Paul always says grace and peace to every letter that he writes, to every church that he writes. But whenever he writes to a pastor, he always says grace, mercy, and peace. <laughs> and it's a very distinctive difference. It is only in the pastoral epistles that you have grace, mercy, and peace. And all the ones that are to the churches is always grace and peace. So that would tell us that there is something going on about that. The word there for grace is the Greek word charis, which means grace. But it was, uh, but was also a form of greeting. It was a Greek form of greeting. How many of y'all know when we, when we meet each other down the street, one of the things we will say as a greeting is, how you doing? We don't necessarily want to know how you're doing, <laughs> but it is a greeting that we, we say, because sometimes people will stop you and they'll start telling you how they're doing. Well, that's not exactly what I was getting into here. <laughs> Yeah, we're just, it's just a form of greeting that we, we sometimes use and we sometimes lose the meaning of it. Well, this is a, uh, a form of greeting that they would use as a Greek because the word not only meant grace, but there was also an aspect of favor with it. And so this is how you would, uh, you would be greeting someone. And actually, when a Greek person would greet you this way, they're saying, I greet you with grace and favor. And so when Paul writes to the churches, because he was writing to churches that were made up of both both Greek and Jewish people. And in, in getting both of these, he had this greeting in there. When he says grace, it tells the Greek people, oh, that's our greeting. That's the greeting that we're used to. So when he says grace be to you, he's actually addressing this to the uh, Greeks that would be there in the city or those that would be reading it because this is the greeting that they would be familiar with. When he would use the word peace, now, in your outline, I put the, uh, what the Greek word is in there, and I had it in mind, and I looked at that, and I said, I know I'm going to mispronounce that because, you know, my English isn't so good. And I look at that, and I look at it, and I say, Irene. <laughs> and, and I said, I know I'm going to say that when I get on up there. So I came back over to mine, and I put it into the Greek because it's the only way I'd be able to pronounce it right. Irene. Irene is how it would actually be, be in there. It's, and it means... It means uh, prosperity, one, peace, quietness, rest, or to set at one again. Now, when the Jews would greet each other, what was the greeting that the Jewish people would use? Shalom. Well, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. 
And so this is the Greek word for peace, which is actually the Greek word that you would use if you were a Jewish person to greet one. So when he says grace and peace, he is appealing to both Greek and Jewish members of the people that would receive this letter. But now we have here in this extra one that when he's writing to the pastor, he also says, Mercy. <laughs> Aleos. It means compassion, human or divine or tender mercy. Compassion. It could be human compassion. It can be divine passion, uh, compassion. But he's saying mercy be to you. Now, when we endeavor to do the work of the ministry, we're not just in a place to receive a stricter judgment. How many of y'all know we've, it's often been said when you get in the area of ministry, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to have a stricter judgment. If you're going to be in an area of a leader, you're going to have a stricter judgment, all these sort of things. It's, and, you know, why would anybody get involved? <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the help in doing that? Well, what he is saying here is this. When you get involved in ministry, and this is not just five-fold ministry, this is not just teaching ministry, this is not just pastoral ministry, this is not just missionaries and apostles and prophets and the like. When you get involved in ministry, there is mercy there for you. Now, understand the word for here for mercy is both human and divine. It's both human and divine. I look at it this way. When you get involved in ministry... And you are doing the work of God. You both have access to greater compassion from God to you. Now think of it this way. If you, have, if you had 12 kids, you don't, of course. But <laughs> if you had 12 kids and out of those 12 kids, two of them really worked hard at the house. They cleaned, they prep things, they would go out and get stuff, they were always working and keeping the house going, and the rest of them were lazy bums. Which one would you have more compassion towards? If one of those two slipped up, would you have more judgment or compassion for them? You would have more compassion for them, right? Why? <laughs> because they're out doing your will. They're out doing what you want them to do. And sometimes in doing what you want them to do, they sometimes mess up, All right? If you have the little ones running around home and they get themselves into trouble trying to do something to help you, how many of y'all know that changes how you deal with them? Because sometimes, you know, they're trying to help you out with something and they create a big problem. Other times they create a big problem just because they're being bad. And they get a different response. But when they're out trying to help you and it doesn't work out so good... There's compassion there, isn't there? Because they're learning. See, this is why our God, God our Father works. When we are out there working for Him and we mess up, there is more compassion from God to us when we are out there trying to do His will, but we messed up because our attitude is right, because we're out there trying to do the right thing. We have, a, we have an opening for more compassion. There is more mercy that is extended to us. Isn't that good? Oh, glory to God. It's good to have that mercy from God. Just though, when you are out doing the work of God, you are in line for greater mercy. Thank God for that. Because <laughs> we need it. Because some, and even with those, those kids, when they mess up and they do something that wasn't for the good of the household, good for you, but they just messed up, don't you still deal with them with more compassion because of what they're trying to do for you? Doesn't that gain other benefits? Certainly it does. And if it does with us, how much more does it do with the Father? But again, this is mercy that is both human and divine. Mercy also flows to and from us. That if we, as we get involved in the, the work that God has us to do, more mercy will be flowing to us and also more mercy should flow from us. The more involved you are in doing the work of God, the more mercy should flow from you to other people. How many have ever seen people that are in ministry, pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, whatever role that they're in in the body of Christ, ushers, greeters, whatever, whatever they might be. How much worse is it when those particular people do not flow in mercy? Oh, how much more does that hurt? Mm -hmm. 
How much more does that sting? How much does it hurt those that it comes up? We, as those who are working for the kingdom of God, more so than others, should not only receive more mercy, we should extend more mercy. We need to be in a place to extend more mercy. And so when people let us down, when people don't quite measure up, how should we respond? The same way you want your father to respond when you don't quite measure up. The same way you expect him to respond to you. If we are, are negligent in dishing out mercy, what happens to us? Man, don't cut that off. Mercy is the flow to us and from us. We must make sure that in our attitude towards people, we are above all merciful. Okay, maybe they deserve some judgment here. Maybe, but what kind of things get a short temper to church? What kind of things get us short-tempered with other believers? What kind of things get us short-tempered with people who are just are not measuring up to the things of God, to the things of studying, or they're not putting the time in? How many things are there that we can get kind of short on? But we shouldn't. We need to grow in mercy. And we need to extend more mercy because we bring more people in by being merciful than by being judgmental. Jesus, when he dealt with the sinners, the tax collectors, the publicans, how, what was his attitude? He was mercy, wasn't he? He didn't sit there and point out Zacharias, Zacchaeus, you sinner. <laughs> he didn't do that. But when he came up to the Pharisees, the Sadducees and such, what happened? It changed. Why? Because the Pharisees, Sadducees and such did not extend mercy. They wanted to receive it, but they didn't extend it. Whereas these other ones, they needed to receive it before they could go anywhere. We need to be the extenders of mercy. We need to make sure. We need to be having the attitude, Father God, you extend mercy to me. I'm going to extend mercy to them. I'm going to love them on it. I'm going to keep giving them mercy. Even though they don't, don't deserve it, even though they've messed up for the umpteenth time, I'm going to give them mercy. Yeah. Now, there's sometimes you need to have a stern talking to. I understand that. <laughs> There's sometimes you need to set some people down and say, look, all right, you've messed up a lot of times here. What are we doing to get this thing fixed? We need to sometimes have a, have a conversation about that sort of thing. But most of the times we need to grow more in mercy than we do in judgment. Judgment seems to come easy. <laughs> a little too easy, doesn't it? Yeah. But we need to, to grow more in the mercy side. If you're going to err, err more on the mercy side. That's a little bit easier to get off of the mercy side because once the judgment is, is uh, extended, it's tough to pull it back. Mercy is a little bit easier to do that on. As one ministering on behalf of God's calling and purpose, you should abound in mercy toward others. We should abound in it. How can I be more merciful? People should not be in fear to talk to us. They should, they, they weren't with Jesus. Zacchaeus wasn't afraid of Jesus. The publicans were not afraid to come and have lunch, to invite him over to the house. They weren't afraid because he was one who extended mercy. So as he says here, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As we receive from him, we give. Freely we have received, freely we Give. Verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, it's really easy to read over this verse and miss what Paul is saying here. Really, really easy to do this. Look at what he... Let me read this again. I have some other translations for you to try and help pull this out. But in... As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. What is Paul saying? Try and paraphrase this in your own head. I'm going to read you from the message translation. On my way to the province of Macedonia, I advised you to stay in Ephesus. Well, I haven't changed my mind. Stay right there on top of things so that the teaching stays on track. How often is it that we receive instructions from someone over us or from God himself and because things get a little discouraging, because things get tough, we think we need new instructions. <laughs> I think the old ones are gone. The old ones are obsolete because this is tough. This is hard. I don't like this. And we want, what's the, what's the next set of instructions? 
And God's saying, no, there's no other instructions. That's what I told you to do. Keep on going. One of the best stories I heard about this was Brother Keith would uh, tell us stories when he was going to Raymond. When he, he said God gave him this very simple instruction because, you know, as we've often talked to you, God is very short in words, but very powerful, but very short. And so his command was from God, and he knew God this from God, help Brother Hagin. Three words. <laughs> Three words. That was his commission. Help Brother Hagin. And so he set out to do that. Now, help Brother Hagin meant different things as he was uh, getting more skilled and more able to do things. He was able to do more things for that. But then after, I don't know, it was like 20 years or so, he was there at the school and ministry and doing different things. And then the time came for him to, to go off into, into his own ministries and he was doing that. Eventually, he started a church. And uh, God tapped him on the shoulder one time and said, I never released you from that first commission. And he says, oh, dear, that's true. <laughs> and so they actually called up Brother Hagin. Do you need any help with anything? And uh, yeah, they, yeah, we could. And uh, so they went on out. And the, from that point on, you know, they, they kept that going. And sometimes Brother Hagin would call him up. Can you come help? And he said, sometimes we would just get back from a set of meetings and Brother Hagin would call. Can you come help? And they're tired. But what was their commission? Help Brother Hagin. And so they'd get in the plane. And they'd fly out their own expense fly on out to the place they're at and they'd minister with Brother Hagin, do whatever they needed to, to be done until they, they came on back. Because what's the commission? Help Brother Hagin. When we have a commission from God, we stay with it until God gives us another commission. Too often, we want new instructions. We're just going, well, I'm tired of these instructions. I want some new ones. I don't like these ones. These ones aren't, I'm not having fun with this. You know, it was good for a while, but you know... I, you, and different ones have different time frame. Some people, you know, six months. <laughs> you know, six months, I need new instructions. Some people go longer. They can go six years. Some people go 16 years. Whatever it is, until God gives you different instructions, what do you do? Do what he told you. God's not in the habit of coming on over. This is where Paul, I think, picks up this attitude. He's not in the, I, don't, I'm not, I don't expect to keep coming over here, Timothy, and telling you what to do. What I told you when I left is what I want you to do. And this is it. And he, re, he reaffirms it. Now, God's not always so kind. I've heard stories of people, they, they kind of got off and, and uh, that didn't work out so good. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that teach no other doctrine. When you have a commission from God, go at it as if that is what you are going to do until you die. That's what you stay with. If God gives you another commission, then you go with that. I knew from early on, God told me that I would be pastoring the church here in, the, in my own hometown. Told me that back when I was in high school. And so that's what I endeavored to do. But there was a time when I was in a church and I was serving as a youth pastor. And I was having such a good time. I was having so much fun with those youth. And I saw what it was in the adult church and I saw what it was with the youth. And I said, Father God, if it's okay with you, I'll just stay here with the youth for the rest of the years. <laughs> I said, I'm fine with this. I'm having fun. This is good. I see what goes on up there. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't so much as, as interested in that. But after a few years, uh, God began to, to change my heart. And, and I began to say, all right, I'm, I'm not quite here with this. Now, again, my commission was never be a youth pastor. My commission was... And so we had to keep working towards that thing. And so, all right, well, we need to lay this down. So I need to lay that down, put it in charge of some other people we had raised up. And I still had a, able to be able to help out some things with it. But then started moving into the adult one, and I just noticed the change. And just uh, moved right on over. Well, Paul reminds him of the same charge he gave before. He's not changing this thing. Now, that change is that they teach no other doctrine. I urge you before I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So they can get into some other doctrine. He says they have a t there's some, there are some there that have a tendency to teach another doctrine. You make sure that they don't. Now imagine this is your commission. You're being left in Ephesus for the purpose that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. We already know from the rest of the, the book that Timothy is young. 
And there's many there that look down on him for his age. And what's his job? Make sure they don't teach any other doctrine. Which ones do you think probably look down on him for his age? Probably the ones who want to teach another doctrine, right? <laughs> so he's got these people who look down on him, who he's supposed to correct and bring back in the line. That's kind of a tall order, isn't it? He's probably getting a little discouraged at it. They're not listening to me. They don't want to yield. I don't know if I'm doing any good here. Probably at some point he's thinking, no, I'm not really being effective. I'm not, I'm not doing that charge. Is there something else you want me to do? Is there another place I can go? Is there uh, something? He says, but Paul saw something in him that he could keep him over there. That you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edification which is in faith. So teach, make sure that they teach no other doctrine nor that they give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Now this is a tendency of Jewish people. They get into the genealogies and they get into the fables. The fables are Old Testament tales that they sometimes equated with Scripture. Things that happened in the past. And they carried these stories because the Jewish folks were good at carrying stories and they'd pass them on down and they, well, we had this story. And they would elevate the stories, the fables, to the level of the Word of God. And the endless genealogies, they were always tampering with the history. Where'd you come from? And they were pulling things out of that. And he said, no, this is, this is not it. You, you don't need things outside of the Word of God and you don't need to pull this stuff out of the genealogies. Make sure they stay out of that. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edification or edifying, which is in faith. So here's the, if you want to find out, are we into fables and endless genealogies or something that's similar there? Does what is being ministered bring more questions instead of edification? Have you ever sat and listened to the Word of God being taught someplace and you came out and you're questioning, is that in the Word? Is that really something we're supposed to do? And yet these questions come up. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Did anyone ever do that sort of thing? How? I've not seen that. And these questions are always coming up about it. Do you have that going on? Or have you ever sat in, one, in a service and you just feel, oh, this feels so good. Oh, I'm just feeling built up. Oh, it's just like it's feeding right into my spirit. That's what it's supposed to be doing. Questions instead of godly edification, which is in faith. But he says this, say this up. Uh, that you may charge some. The word there is the Greek word, is the root Greek word, tis, which means some, any, or certain ones. And in this one, he's talking about certain ones. In um, the New Century Version, it translates it this way. I asked you to stay longer in Ephesus when I went into Macedonia so you could command some people there to stop teaching false things. The New American Standard Bible says that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The New Living Translation says, and stop those whose teaching is contrary to truth. The New English Translation, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching. The Williams puts it this way, to warn certain teachers. So when it's using this word tis, it is pulling out certain ones, some who have had a tendency to go after wrong things, false things. More than likely, these are Jewish people. They're not Gentiles. They are Jewish folks who, who had the Bible and they're going back into the Old Testament and pulling things out of it that Paul says that's false. That's not in line with the New Testament teaching. That's not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure you take these people and bring them in line. If they were Greeks... If they were Gentiles, they didn't have any word. And how are they going to exert anything? We're looking at Jewish people that had been scattered about, who have some knowledge of the Old Testament and are trying to use that in a wrong way. And Paul saw it before he left. There are certain ones there and they have this tendency. They feel like they got some knowledge, but the knowledge they have is not bringing... You've run into people. They've got a certain amount of knowledge and they hear something and they're the expert. They are the expert on the subject and they throw out stuff and you say, this is wrong. This doesn't even make sense. There's no life in what you're saying. There's no edification in what you're saying. There are certain people who have that tendency. 
And Paul recognized them right off the bat. There's those people. There's that one, that one, that one, that one. You know who they are. There are some there. I left you there because you've got to keep them in line. And Timmy's saying, man, this is tough. <laughs> this, is, this is not fun. Now, the word doctrine comes from the Greek word. It, it talks about false doctrine. But if you know our word heterosexual? It comes from the Greek word hetero. And that's what actually comes before this word for doctrine. It is the word heterodidaskalis, which is doctrines of a different kind. There is also homo, which is ones of the same kind. But this is hetero, ones of a different kind. What he is saying is what they are teaching, though they are coming from Old Testament point of view, is a gospel that is of a different kind. He says, you've got to make sure you keep them in line. Don't let them teach this stuff. So the differentiating way to, to tell here is questions or disputes. Questions and disputes on one side or edification on the other. Now, the word doctrine is used 50 times in the New Testament. You can pull up your quick verse and do a quick search on it, and you'll find that'll come up 50 verses that this word is in. Of that, 17 times are in Paul's letters to the pastors. <laughs> 17 times of the 50 times this word is used in the entire New Testament. 17 times are in First and Second Timothy, Titus, the pastoral epistles. That's a whole lot in a small bit of real estate, which means there are certain people who have a responsibility to make sure that doctrine stays on line. And that people need to, respe- to respond to that. And he's telling them there, you need to keep those other folks in line. You need to keep them in, in line with, with doctrine, the correct doctrine. So he goes on in verse 5. Have you ever... Uh, I was reading in um, uh, Brother Rick's devotional. I wanted to read this for you. I, I pulled this out. Uh, Brother Rick Renner wrote this. Have you ever been in a situation where you found it hard to submit graciously to the orders of the person in authority over you? <laughs> Maybe you thought that the orders were unfair or that you had a better idea. Or can you think of a moment when a fellow employee, staff member, or volunteer became so obstinate, disagreeable, or uncooperative that it made everyone else feel uneasy? (laughs) What an opening, huh? Well, here, we get into that here in this section. Verse 5. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So here we have the purpose. This is the purpose. For it. He says the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. We read this, the purpose of the commandment. It, we, we may not quite get the meaning of what this is. So I pulled out a whole lot of translations so that you get more of the flavor of what's going on here. In the New Century Version, it reads it this way. The purpose of this command is for people to have love, a love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a true faith. The New Living Translation puts it this way. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. The New English Translation. But the aim of our instruction is love. The New American Standard Bible. But the goal of our instruction is love. The purpose, the aim, the goal of this instruction is love from a first off, a pure heart, secondly, a good conscience, and third, a sincere faith. Three things. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Does that mean a whole lot to you? What is love from a pure heart? What is love from a good conscience? What is love from sincere faith? See, sometimes we read these things and they're meaningful scriptures to us, but when it gets right down to it, what does it mean? What is love from a pure heart? What is love from a good conscience? What is love from sincere faith? How am I supposed to have... If if the purpose of the commands, if the goal of the instructions are given to me so that I have love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, but I don't really have a handle on what a pure heart is, a good conscience is, or sincere faith is, what good is it going to do me? i I got to know what this is. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I'm fulfilling the purpose. This is the purpose. Timothy, this is the purpose. This, this is why we give you these instructions. 
This is why this stuff is out here. There's a purpose behind it. The purpose is, the aim of this, the goal of the instructions is love. The word there for love is? You don't need me to tell you, do you? It's agape. The purpose of this instruction is agape, love, from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere beliefs. So I kind of meditate on this for a little, and I put these words in here just to try and help you out a little bit. You see if this helps you out any. Pure heart. The purpose, the aim, the goal of the instruction of love is from a pure heart that our intention for loving. The intention for loving. When it says a pure heart, it's talking about the where, where our love is coming from. There's got to be a, a good intention. How many of you know that there are people out there that pretend to love you? Why do they pretend to love you? Well, I mean, they're all nice when you're there. But you know they don't like you because you've heard from so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and you've seen this and seen that and all these sort of things. You know the intention is not there, but they get in front of you and they act like it. They are giving you love from a impure heart because they have to cover up their intention. They have to cover up their, their purpose. How many? We've all been through these ones, right? I mean, we, we expect it in the world. But how many know it hurts more when it comes from people in the church? Oh, man. I remember the first time I went through this and, you know, it was no small thing. It wasn't just one person in the church. It was a whole group of them. And they were leaders. And they had gotten so far off into these things that they, the church that I served at and I was, I was working for and gave everything I had for, that these leaders conspired together for the purpose of undermining everything I did in the church. And yet when I would talk to them and confront them, they were, oh, Steve, oh, we love you, Steve. Oh, we appreciate having you around. Oh, you work so hard and you do all these different things. And then behind my back when, they were, when I'm not around, they said all sorts of stuff. They did all kinds of things. And there's one time I'd already resigned from the church. I was leaving. I had gone away to the, uh, set up things. I was leaving for Tulsa. Basically, I was saying, I am so tired of this place. I am so tired of ministry. I am so tired of church people. In particular, I am tired of leaders. I was at a spot that I despised anyone who was in leadership of a church because of what I had gone through with these people. Because of the things that they had said, the things they had done, the assumptions that they made without ever talking to me about it. Not one time did anyone ever come up to me and talk to me about it. Not a single time. But they would conspire amongst themselves because one person came in and began to taint it. And that one person was the one who was the most buoyant, most... He, he was the face of the whole thing. In my face, he was loving, he was kind, and behind my back, he cut me down I remember one time, just before I was, I had already resigned, and I was coming, coming over to the place, and I was getting ready to knock on this particular pastor's door. Getting ready to knock on it. And before I did, I heard Brother Higgins' name mentioned. And this is why they despised me. I heard Brother Higgins, and I, I just held up. I didn't knock. And I sat there, and I listened. And I heard as this pastor began to tell someone that I worked very closely with for all these years that we had sweated out a number of problems. We had stuck by each other. We took on some, some things that most people wouldn't want to take on. We straightened out some messes. We were locked arm in arm. And he told this person, I think that Brother Higgin is the biggest heretic that ever came to the face of this earth. Not more than two days before, he told me how much he appreciated him, how much he admired him. Two days before that. And here he was there saying that. I've told the story before, but as soon as I left, every bit of Brother Higgins' material, Brother Copeland's material, whatever charismatic, faith-filled stuff, it was all in the dumpster the day after I left. Their war with me was about faith. It was not about necessarily me personally. They couldn't wait to get me out, and they changed the entire direction of the church and went into a whole new one. But they needed me to get out. And what they needed to do in the meantime was to undermine me to people. So I had gone on out and I was setting up things in Tulsa because I'm going out to Tulsa. I know church works out there. 
<laughs> That's my idea. I know church works out there. I'm going to get out there and get involved with the, back with my other church that I was at. And, oh, glory to God, Lisa, maybe I can get myself back in the line where I'll actually be excited about being in church again because I was not too excited. about. I was excited about going to church, but not necessarily about being involved in the church. And so, you know, the first time I got out to the Tulsa, I, uh, <laughs> I went to church. Church started at uh, 8 a.m. I showed up at 7.55. And I left as soon as it was over. As soon as it was over, I booked out. I was gone. <laughs> I, I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to mess with people. I came in. I enjoyed the service. And I left. I did that for a little while. And then after a while, you know, I got, got over the thing. But anyway, I had gone out there to set things up. And I came on back. And a couple of people in the congregation, they weren't involved in leadership. They were really concerned. They came up to me and they said, what is going on? I said, well, what do you mean? I was told by this particular pastor not to listen to anything that you said. Not to do anything that you told me to do. And what they did was they gave me a punch list. Can you take care of these things beforehand? And this particular pastor systematically went about to undermine my ability to accomplish any of those things. His goal was that when you leave, you won't be able to get a single thing done on your punch list. And when I heard that, I wanted to walk into the office the next day and say, I'm done. I'm out of here now. And I didn't. I still don't know whether it was the right move or not. I still sort of think I should have. <laughs> I still go back there and kind of relate. Should I just have gone? Should I just have left and just not told anybody anything? I knew that it would have caused other problems. But, but you know, you have some of those. The, the, the intention was wrong. I know firsthand what this is like. I have been in front of people who stand there. Born again, supposedly spirit-filled people and tell you how much they love and appreciate you and then they'll turn around and they'll say something completely different. I know what that's like. And he says, when you follow the purpose of the doctrine, it will produce love from a pure heart. Which means I don't have to be fake, phony. I don't have to cover up anything that I'm feeling because first off, I've been extended mercy. I give mercy. Therefore, I'm not in judgment. I don't want to cover this stuff up. This is the purpose of the commandment. This is what you're, you're there to do. So it's love from a pure heart, the intention. The, why do you do this? Why do you love this person? Why is that going on? It's from a pure heart. It's, it's, it's agape love. It's based on the love of the person who gives it, which is God the Father gives it to us, and then we give it to someone else. Number two, good conscience. That's actions. How many of y'all know that people may have good intentions, but they have bad actions? We may have, our intentions might be good. There's many people in politics that say, judge us by our intentions, not by what actually happened. That's wrong. <laughs> All right. When we have good intentions, but bad results over and over and over, well, we meant to do good. Uh, no. <laughs> After a while, we got to come to our senses and say, look, this is not what's supposed to happen. You know, when you get in counseling and you got a husband and wife in there and the husband is beating on the wife. Well, I really do love her. Oh, I really do love her. Well, your actions are not saying that. These are bad actions. This should not be happening. Oh, well, I'll fix it. And they go, go away and he beats her up again. What do, we do? what do we do? There's no good conscience there because the actions are bad. We got to cover up the actions. I meant good. I meant intent, intended well, but in the end, the result, the actions were bad. Conscience is about the things that I've done, whether good or bad. And if I feel good about the things I've done, I have a good conscience. I don't have to cover those things up. Actions. The what. What does love do? Why and the what. Sincere faith. This is beliefs. There are certain beliefs that our love is built off of. We got to have sincere faith. We've got to make sure that the love that we have comes from a sincere faith. It comes from faith in God. It comes from faith in His Word. It comes from faith in what God says is going to come about. The beliefs, the how. Intentions, actions, and beliefs. If we're going to have the right kind of love, the purpose that He's, he's saying these words for, the aim, the goal of this instruction is love from pure intentions, good actions, and sincere beliefs. Pure intentions, good actions, and sincere beliefs. From which some, the exact same word he used before is the same word he uses here, the word tis. Root word tis. 
from which some, the ones that he told him, you got to keep in line, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. If you want to find out if a person has gotten off of the purpose, has gotten off of the aim, has gotten off of the goal of the instruction, and is no longer having love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, here you go. They have gotten off, they have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. What is idle talk? Talk that means nothing. There's just no purpose to it at all. Idle talk. If you need a, a real good example of this, think of Joe Buck on football. Idle talk. It means nothing. The boy doesn't know what he's speaking about. Most times he gets things wrong. It's idle talk. How many Joe Buck just bugs you? He, he just bugs me. I can't listen to Joe Buck. I've got to find another way to hear, hear football because uh, Chris Collinsworth is about getting the same, same guy. For you football fee people, watch that. But just somebody who's talking like they know what they're talking about, but there's absolutely no substance to it at all. None. I mean, you have people in your life, they think they're expert on a topic, and they begin to talk on a thing, and you know, you, you don't know what you're saying. You have no idea. It's idle talk. This is what it will produce. This is the end result of it. Now, the word here, turned aside, is from the... Greek word, and I didn't put this one in the Greek, so we'll do my best here. Ektrepo. Ektrepo. It's either trepo or trepo. I can't tell from the English. Ektrepo, which means to turn or to twist. It means to turn or to twist. The word was actually a, a medical term that was used in the medical world to denote a bone that had slipped out of joint. So when Paul is using this picture... Or this word, the picture, the, the uh, argumentative and the stubborn leaders, he was making a very powerful statement about them and their very bad attitudes. Using this word, he is calling them, in medical terms, a bone out of joint. How many of you have ever had a bone out of joint? If you have a bone out of joint, that means the bone is pushing into its place where it's not intended. And that doesn't feel good. I mean, even if, you ha- even if you haven't had it done, can you picture it? Can you kind of feel, oh, that bone is just not in the right spot. I need to get someplace where they can kind of move that bone over because, oh, it's just not in the right place. It just needs to get moved on over. You know, I, I guess dislocation is about the same kind of thing. You dislocate a shoulder and you see, oh, it's so much pain there and so much pain and somebody comes up and they put them in a whole lot of pain and everything's better. <laughs> Because it got the bone in the right place. When the bone is out of place, all the body pays attention to that bone. And the purpose of the body is lost. Because now the body is focused on the bone. If you got a knee out of joint, can you as a in your body Fulfill the obligations you have in a day. No, what are you doing? Everything in the body is working around taking care of that knee. Trying to get that knee back into position. Trying to get to where we have to be because the knee's not quite carrying us there. Right? There's a, a bone out of joint. And so when he's using this term, you can actually get this bone out of joint idea. Where everything is, is mindful of this. We got these people that have turned aside. They have twisted. They're out of alignment with everything else that they're supposed to be. And all the attention is being sucked into them. So the purpose of the body is not being done. We're focused on this one spot. Now, some among us can become like a bone out of joint. We can become a source of real pain and real irritation to the entire body. When a person gets this far out, the entire body knows about them. And they cause great pain for the whole body. Great discomfort for the whole body. We've got to make sure that we don't get there. Because he says here, from which some having strayed have turned aside, ectrepo, 
And then he goes on. I lost my page there. There we go. Some have turned aside to, again, idle talk. Idle talk. These people draw attention away from the purpose of the body to attract attention to their disputes, discussions that give no light or life. They give no light and they give no life. You see the job that Timothy has? Keep these people in line. <laughs> How many of you are Timothy are writing back to Paul? Paul, <laughs> do you have any other word for me? <laughs> is there anything else I can do? I'm getting kind of tired of this job over here. <laughs> this is not so fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we understand where Timothy's coming from, don't we? Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. <laughs> They're saying stuff, but they don't even understand it. They're affirming. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Uh-huh. And they don't even understand. Have you ever been in a service and you're sitting next to someone and the preacher's going on and they're going, Amen, Amen, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And you're thinking, I've seen you live. You have no idea what this is about. This is what these people are. They're bones out of joint. They're twisted. They've gotten away from the purpose of the instruction. The purpose of the instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. And they have gotten away from that. Purpose that we had to make sure we always line up with, the Word of God, the instruction we get from the Word of God, is to keep us in line with the walk of love. We are to have love from a pure heart. Love from a good conscience. And love from sincere faith. If we stray off of that, we are likely to become bones at a joint. People that have turned away. People that have gotten into idle words. Our words have no life and no power. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Is it not true that people that have walked off this way all feel like they're teachers? All feel like they know better than what most people are teaching out there? Don't they, don't they have that attitude? But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. <laughs> the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How many of you get upset at those law shows that have people using the law unlawfully? Oh, that gets us upset, doesn't it? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. Get this down, what he is saying. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Who is a righteous person? Those in Christ. Anyone born again is a righteous person, which means the law is not made for you. So then why is it that certain people keep clobbering others over the head with the law? When the law is not made for the righteous. Who is the law made for? But for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine... <laughs> <laughs> we'll just cut the list here short. Anything else is not sound doctrine. That's what the law is for. Because the law is to show people you don't measure up to bring them to Christ. But once they're Christ, the law is done. And we got no purpose beating righteous people over the head with the law. We are not understanding the instructions. We are not coming at love with a pure heart, with good conscience and sincere faith. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, these people, you know what they need to do first? Repent. <laughs> they need to repent. There is no way to fix these people until they repent of what they are doing. They got to repent. You can't adjust them. You can't try and fix their teaching because they're wrong. They are just dead wrong. And they don't understand what it is that they're teaching. The only way that they're going to do it is to repent. And so that's Timothy's job. Get those people to repent. 
Get them to turn around. They think they know they think they know some stuff. You gotta get them to turn around. Timothy's thinking, man. <laughs> then they can be made right. We've given you this list before, just wanted to give it to you again. How to recognize right tra- the right teaching. We're going over this over and over. And this is the thing that we model every service hereby. First off, it is plain. Scripture plainly states it. Secondly, it is repeated. More than a handful of scriptures. If it is important for us to do, it is plain and it is repeated. Third, it is demonstrated. The doctrine is demonstrated. Whatever someone is teaching you that scripture is saying we should do is demonstrated by someone in the Bible. If it is not demonstrated by someone in the Bible, it is not true. People who are talking about going into spiritual warfare in high, uh, in high places began to think, well, in order to do that, we have to climb up to the highest sky- skyscrapers in the city. We have to hire airplanes and, and intercede from airplanes. And they actually did this. They actually chartered airplanes and would fly up in the heavens and, and have intercessory prayer. If that was the case, how did Paul do it? There's no one in the Bible who demonstrated that. It cannot be a true doctrine. It is plain, it is repeated, it is demonstrated, and fourth, it is consistent. It agrees with the Word of God's overall message. There is no doctrine that is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. If you will make sure these four things are always true, you will not be led astray. It is plain. It is not some twisted thing out of Scripture. It is repeated. It is demonstrated. It is consistent. And if we do that, we'll make sure that we stay out of false doctrine and stay out of these areas where where Paul is, where Paul is uh, telling Timothy. You got some winners there. (laughs) Ephesus was a powerful church, but they had some winners. (laughs) And Paul says, this is your purpose. Your purpose that I left you for is keep them in line. Get them out of that stage. Don't let them go off and do all these things. (laughs) Glory to God. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. As you give us instructions on what we are to do, we will stay with those instructions until either we die or you give us some new ones. But we're not going to keep coming after you, pestering you. Well, what should I do now? Yeah, I'm tired of that job. What else can I do? Nope, we're going to stay with the same thing and keep on going. But the purpose of the commands, the purpose of the instructions that we receive are love from the pure heart. Help us, Father, as those that are leaders, those that help other people, that we make sure that we model for them. Love from the pure heart. Love from... Our inside. There's no motive we have to cover up. We just love them. That as mercy has flowed to us, we freely give out mercy. When people come to us, we don't get upset. We don't get judgmental. We make sure we bring all that in the line. And we understand, nope, mercy. Mercy flows out from me because mercy flows into me. And whatever flows into me, whatever freely I have received, freely I give. And if we get messed up in the area of mercy, we're going to get messed up in the area of love. Father, I thank you that you help us with that. We're going to have love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.